This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please support us on Patreon over at patreon.com geeks or via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. And to want to give a special thank you to Terry Hannett, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so now let's get to our show. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 519 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. I'm David Barr Kirtley, author of the book Save Me Please and Other Stories, which is available now on Amazon.com. We had a great conversation about the book back in episode 500, so definitely check that out if you missed it. And our guest today is Adam Troy Castro. He's the author of 26 books, including four Spider-Man novels, three novels about his profoundly damaged far-future murder investigator Andrea Court, and six middle-grade novels about the dimension-spanning adventures of young Gustav Gloom. Adam's works have won the Philip K. Dick Award and have been nominated for eight Nebulas, three Stokers, two Hugos, and one World Fantasy Award. And in this interview, we'll be discussing his short story collections, Her Husband's Hands and Other Stories, and The Author's Wife versus The Giant Robot. And now here's our interview with Adam Troy Castro. All right, so we're here with Adam Troy Castro. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, David. Thank you for having me. Okay, so how did you first get interested in fantasy and science fiction? Well, it's an impossible question to answer because I cannot remember the moment. Um, I do remember very early on being pretty much obsessed with the Universal Monster movies. I remember very early on uh, reading Arthur C. Clarke and Isaac Asimov. I remember very early on uh, discovering The Twilight Zone, the Godzilla movies, and other things. Um, I was into Harlan Ellison before I was 10. I cannot tell you when this all started because I do not remember the uh, the actual moment of fate. <laughs> um, but I do remember, as if I go back as far as I possibly can, I remember writing obviously hopeless short stories at age five. <laughs> so, so it's it's goes back further than my memory. And so did you start – when did you start getting stuff published or submitting stuff to be published? Well, I was submitting throughout my teens hopeless stuff, absolutely hopeless stuff. I submitted to the first issues of Asimov's Science Fiction magazine and never sold to them. <laughs> Still, <laughs> never have. Um, I can tell you that my method of submitting a manuscript was itself hopeless muddy carbons folded into eighths, sent in a regular envelope. And I remember some of those stories and they were terrible. Um, so it was a long time before I made various realizations about things a story must accomplish, which I really did not uh, start to uh, congeal in my mind until my early 20s. And it still took till I was about 27. And so did you know other people who were 
into science fiction or writing science fiction or were you going to conventions or any, anything like that? I didn't – I went to a couple of scattered conventions uh, as early as uh, age 10 or 12. When I was about that age, uh, there was a convention called Lunacon, which was usually held at the Commodore Hotel, I believe, in New York City. And all that interested me about that convention, literally all, was that at 2 o'clock on Saturday, Isaac Asimov gave a speech. So I would buy a membership to go to that convention just to listen to that speech. <laughs> I attended no other panels. I would show up. I would show up and sit down at that speech, watch that speech, um, say hello to Asimov, who I can tell made me felt that I was a pain in the ass kid. <laughs> and, um, and then I might have showed up in the dealer's room a little bit. Um, but then I left. Then I left, and it was under similar circumstances that I first met Harlan as a truly pain-in-the-ass uh, 14- or 15-year-old kid. Um, and it did not go well at that particular point. Um, but uh, wait, so wait, when, you, when you say it didn't go well, like what, what do you mean by that? Let's just say that, uh, that my personality at 14 – uh, conflicted with Harlan's personality at 1974 or so. And uh, that was fair enough. And I uh, didn't meet him again for many, many years. <laughs> but um, so I wasn't really interested in the in the giant breadth of science fiction. And I didn't know what, uh, what that was like. I went to co- comic book conventions. Um, and I did that a whole bunch of times uh, up to my early 20s. But I largely didn't really go to conventions until after I sold my first couple of stories. And then they became a regular thing. And then I met a lot of people who were interested. I can tell you that some of the people who I knew were not into science fiction, which is fair. And I received some tremendously awful feedback in the <laughs> early in my early 20s. Um, I had one very well-known acclaimed writer in a college workshop, just tell me, Adam, you are never going to be a writer. You're never going to sell a word. And the fun thing about this is that I remembered Harlan telling the story of him being told the same thing by a college professor named Dr. Shedd. And the professor was looking at me and the heart was beating in my chest and the my pulse was beating in my between my ears, and I just remembered thinking, treasure this day, Adam. This is your Dr. Shed moment. <laughs> I had that thought, and I eventually got to tell Harlan that his voice had been internalized. <laughs> I mean, if people don't know the story, at least the way I've heard it is that Harlan yeah, had this professor who said, you'll never make any money as a writer. And then for like years afterward, he would send this guy a photocopy of every check he received or something something like that. It's a fascinating story. And I would not go uh, that far to be vindictive. Harlan was better at being vindictive than I am. And I'm fairly good at being vindictive. Um, one thing is that uh, Dr. Shedd was not a published writer. He may have been academically, but he did not write fiction successfully. And by the time Harlan had been doing this for 20 year, years or so, um, there was an encounter with him by somebody else who said that 
he mentioned Harlan's name and Har- and uh, Dr. Shedd said, God damn him. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, you know, that was fine. By the time uh, I started selling stuff, the guy who told me that was dead. Uh, one reason I never um, I never wasted my postage on him because I don't mail <laughs> but uh, but I always did wonder what would have happened if I eventually told him that uh, I successfully uh, made hash of his prediction. That would have been nice. I mean, it says in your bio that you sold your first piece to Spy Magazine. Yes, Spy Magazine was a. Um, was a pop culture and New York City cultural magazine that was published for a few years um, in the late 1980s. And it was uh, basically uh, the National Lampoon. If the National Lampoon were more like Esquire and more uh, interested in nonfiction. So it had very snarky reportage. And uh, I started selling my first stories my first, uh, not stories, but think pieces to a spy magazine. And I did about six or seven of them. And I've got to tell you what I got paid for those pieces for spy magazine, because it was very, very well, uh, very well financed is still more than I got paid for my science fiction, uh, 20, uh, 30 years later, uh, which is something I'm very wry about, but I did yeah. some, yeah, I did some things, uh, uh I'm a fiction writer, so I get paid the fiction writer rates, and I've occasionally been paid nonfiction rates, and nonfiction is better, but what are you going to do? You do what your imagination dictates. Yeah, well, so just give us a little bit of an overview of your career, because you know I was telling you a little bit before we got started that um, I'm friends with Jordan Hammersley, who was the editor for your Gustav Gloom series. And yes, then- I love Jordan. Hi, Jordan, if you're listening to this. <laughs> Um, you will remember with fondness. We will meet again. Um, I was writing for Spy Magazine, and I more or less simultaneously got a uh, uh, job writing a monthly column for a great comics, uh, fanboy-type comics magazine called Amazing Heroes. Um, and that was great fun. And then I sold my first couple of short stories, one to Dragon Magazine, which is my first story. It was called A Confusing Sequel to a Story You Haven't Read. Hmm. That was my official first sale. Um, Dragon Magazine also paid very well. Um, Again, better than most fiction I sell today. Um, And then I sold to Pulp House, a story called Clearance to Land, um, which was critical because – I am very, very fond of the process by which this story was sold. I mentioned before that um, my manuscript format was hopeless. Well to my late 20s, I I sent messy manuscripts with lots of crossouts and um, uh, muddy carbons and things like that. And I happened to catch Christine Catherine Rush, the editor, on a day when she really wanted to knock out a couple of stories on the uh, slush pile before she went to lunch. She didn't want to get stuck in a story. She wanted to find the two most hopeless-looking stories <laughs> on her uh, on her desk and read a hopeless-looking story. And 
What a lot of people don't appreciate is that editors look for the opportunity to quit reading the story on the first page. I have had unpublished writers react to this with anger, but the truth is, is that they do not have time to read every word of every story. If you give them an excuse in the first few pages to stop reading, and it usually happens in the first page, boring prose, bad English, anything like that, they will stop reading. And uh, she realized she was still reading on page five and then read to page read to page 24 and then brought it to her partner, Dean, and said, just read the first page. And he read the first page and said, okay, where's page two? And they have, according to the way she puts it, there was a nice little chase around the office. <laughs> but so, yeah, so, so Gustav Gloom and also the AI source infection, or those, those are kind of your two longest running uh, sequences. Yes. Um, the AI source infection is the uh, blanket title or the umbrella title, I should say, because that's the actual phrase. I don't know where blanket title comes from. Um, for uh, a certain future history of mine, which would include the three Andrea Court novels, a bunch of Andrea Court novellas and one novelette, and various other novelettes, short stories, and novellas uh, featuring other characters. It is a far future history um, in which mankind uh, has uh, uh, relations with several different alien races uh, but is gradually drifting toward war without realizing it. Uh, the first story, which I did not realize was part of this sequence, was was part of a sequence, was uh, a Hugo and Nebula nominee called um, The Funeral March of the Marionettes. And that was published around 1996, I believe. And then I published uh, a few years later, The Tangled Strings of the Marionettes, which is a sequel to that. Um, and then I introduced uh, Andrea Court, and they be- she became the basis of uh, three novels, and starting with Emissaries from the Dead. And all of these stories all connect. Um, th- there's also the Draken sequence, D-R-A-I-K-E-N, which is a super spy also in the same era. And uh, he has various adventures and there's eventually a crossover with Andrea Court. And then how about Gustav Gloom? What's that about? Gustav Gloom is a series of children's books, uh, six of them, about a little boy named Gustav who is raised in a house of shadows, not a haunted house, but a house uh, where sentient shadows live. And there is a uh, big backstory involving a supervillain who is intent on taking over the universe, who um, Gustav and his best friend, a girl named Fernie Watt, must eventually contend with. Um, for the first three books, they're all self-contained, and then they start um, tying together more, and there's a big apocalyptic ending. Good for 10-year-olds. Good for eight-year-olds, in fact. In fact, uh, I am very, very surprised with some of the stuff I got away with in that book. Very much so. And th- thanks to Jordan. And this, uh, 
I'm very amazed by some of the stuff that I didn't get away with. <laughs> it's very, it's very bizarre. I, I, my uh, theory while writing the book is that I would put in whatever I thought I wanted in, and I would never ever uh, censor myself. And I think the one thing that uh, Jordan scotched was um, was a real estate lady drinking from a pocket flask. <laughs> which the characters don't get, by the way. They're kids. They don't know what she's drinking. Mm. Um, that didn't make it in, and a reference to the Beatles did not make it in because the kids would not know who the Beatles were, but the young copy editors at the <laughs> publishing house didn't know who the Beatles were either. Oh, and I felt and I felt very old. Um, but I got I got away with a tremendous amount. Um, the first villain in the series is a guy called the people taker who goes around taking people who are never heard from again. And that was my way of using a serial killer in a children's book. But I never said he was a serial killer. I said he was a people taker. (laughs) Um, and Gustav's origin. I mean, I thought I would not be able to get away with that in anything but an R-rated book. But I found a way to do that. Um, and, I don't, and I'm not going to say what it is because it, you find it out in the second novel. But uh, I was really amazed with what I was able to get away with in terms of a lot of things. And one of the reasons I was is that although the stories were kind of horrific, they were also very funny at the same time. They were compared to... Uh, Tim Burton, uh, which allows you to do both at the same time. Um, the phrase often used about the book by kids is that they were spooky. And I never got a complaint by a parent ever. I did get one school principal saying the kids in his school could not read the book. And <laughs> it was the only time that ever happened. Well, because we should explain maybe. I mean, you have a rep, you know, you, you, you've, you've written a lot of stuff, you know, superheroes and science fiction and, and so on, but you write horror. And I would say you have a reputation as a really, really intense horror writer. So when you say, like, when you don't hold things back, you know, that could go, <laughs> that could cover a lot of ground. Well, yeah. Um, about one third of the short fiction I write is horror. And if you count the Gustav Gloom novels, much of what I've written at novel length is also horror. Um, and I've published uh, published around 40 or 50 horror stories. And the thing I want to establish here is that is that I use as much horror as the story can take. A lot of my stories are very quiet horror. But, you know, again, spooky, not horrific. But if I want to uh, write a story that's very violent or one that'll scare the living crap out of you, I will. And I have done that. And there are stories that I warn my horror-averse friends away from. Um, there has actually been a uh, unfortunate side effect of this, is that a lot of science fiction fans will not read my science fiction stuff because they think all I write is really horrific. And my Andrea Court stories have actually gotten complaints in analog because they're crime stories. They're murder mysteries. 
Adam writes about evil people. Well, yeah, murder mysteries (laughs) involve murderers. You can't write a murder mystery without a murderer. And Andrea Court is a very dark personality. I don't mind it. But my model for her was Asimov. Um, And I just go a little further, I think, in terms of uh, a bunch of things, including sex, than Asimov did. But not much further, I don't think. Uh, But my... um, my favorite way of putting this is I want Adam Troy Castro to be a byline, not a trademark. Um, I don't want you to know exactly what kind of story you're going to get when you see my byline. Um, any more than Dan Simmons or Joe Lansdale do. There may be a bunch of stories that all belong in one category, but I've written some really, really silly stuff in addition to all the drop-dead grim stuff. Well, let's talk about you, because when you first really came onto my radar, it was with this, was with this story, RVs. And so the, the premise is it's the science fiction story set in a world where uh, like people are considered uh, not to have souls after they've been born. And so every, all the citizens sort of like stay in the womb their whole lives and kind of drive the bodies that they're in around. Uh, yeah, yeah, there are two there are two kinds of people in that story, fetuses and the RVs, which they ride around in and have fun and replace regularly. Um, yeah, that was a uh, that was a big story in my career, that particular one. I wrote it using an unusual style. And it got a lot of attention. It got a lot of international attention, which was gratifying. Um, and um, and I and I particular and I'm very very fond of it. I still think it's one of the five best stories I ever did. Yeah, I, I think it's a, it's an amazing story. And you say that you it's written in this unusual style. You want to talk about that because it's in these sort of sections with uh, sort of a highlighted you know, title for each section. And then they're sort of short, just, you know, one paragraph or maybe as long as a page or something. It's written in sections that include um, uh, conclusion one, uh, you know, introduction. I may get these something wrong. I'm doing it from memory. Um, Where you bounce back and forth between the point of view of one of these fetuses and one where you – where you, and those where you go to the uh, basically mindless woman, by design, mindless woman, whose fate is to carry it around. And uh, it's written in a very cold style, but it's a very complicated piece of world building. So I, I needed a lot of exposition for the story, and that's the way I got it in. So uh, a lot of people thought that that particular story was cold. A lot of people thought it was too dark and fine. You don't like this one, you like the next one, maybe. But it's done very well for me. It just got translated into Mandarin. So it's going to be in a, in a Chinese uh, anthology very shortly. And, uh, and they're going to have to make some cultural changes just to tell this story. I, I'll never know what exactly they do, but I'll have it. I'll, uh, I'm happy to have it to be seen that on the other side of the world. Yeah, no, that, that's really cool. I mean, and, and a couple of these stories. So, so I'll explain. So, I read your books, uh, "Her Husband's Hands" and other stories, and another one called "The Author's Wife Versus the Giant Robot." 
And so, um, so, so the story, the author's wife versus the giant robot, it also has kind of an interesting, unconventional structure to it because you're reading this story about a giant robot who randomly kills one person in this city every day. And then you, as the author, your wife comes in and interjects commentary about how this, this is kind of silly or whatever. So it kind of shifts, the story kind of shifts back and forth between the story you're reading and this meta commentary that the author and his wife are. This conversation my, they're having yeah. about the my wife Judy, um, who I'm getting this out of the way, died uh, last July. Um, was a great story editor. Uh, she did not, unfortunately, um, live out her dream of being a writer, except for a couple of collaborations with me, much as she wanted to. But she was a great story editor. Uh, she was a member of our writers' workshop when I was uh, doing it with a bunch of other people. And she was able to zero in on what was wrong with the story or what at least needed to be considered with the story. Uh, She fixed a story called uh, A Sweet Slow Dance in the Wake of Temporary... Excuse me, I'm correcting myself. Of A Sweet Slow Dance in the Wake of Temporary Dogs. She fixed that story by telling me exactly what was wrong with it. Um, So she read almost all of my stories before I sent them in. And this particular story about the giant robot living in the middle of basically Manhattan and randomly killing one person every day was um, an exercise in writing about mortality. And she found lots of logical problems in this. And my conversations with her were so terrific that I pretty much reported them um, (laughs) – verbatim when I wrote the story and they helped guide the story. They helped explain at one point why I, uh, I began a romance in the story and then wrote the romance out because it was not the right place for the story to go. Um, in my wife's voice, I explained why that was just a silly way for the story to proceed. And, um, and that was a, ver- that ended up being, um, that was published in Lightspeed, like a lot of these stories were. Um, and it's very ironic to me that in Judy's death, this story is sort of like a commentary on that. Because, you know, she, she got taken randomly by the giant robot. And this happens to all of us. We all have a story like that. And it's unfortunate, but that's what life is, and that's what the story is about. And her presence in the title and in the story is is just a very powerful thing for me. In the story, the the author and his wife have this conversation about that you mentioned that she told him how to fix the story, and and um and he he says I think in that story won a nebula um because of you know because of your uh, input basically so. It didn't win a nebula. I have yet to win a nebula. Oh, it was not. Um, it was nominated for a nebula. It was nominated, and okay. it was nominated by the jury picks. So I'm very proud of that. Uh, do you? Could you say what her fix was, or is that of a sweet slow dance in the wake of temporary dogs includes a a female character who she felt was not given enough of a characterization. She was there reacting to the man who was the main personality in the story, but she did not have an inner life of her own. And Judy said, this is unacceptable. It makes the story mediocre. 
And I, at that point, already thought it was the best story I'd ever written. But what she said was valid. And so I went into the next room and fixed it in 45 minutes by adding another 700 words. But then I came out and she said, you did it, you fixed it. So I always thought that that story was fixed by Judy. It became an important story because of what of Judy's input. And I say it still. Yeah, yeah. You say you say in the author's note that it's it's your favorite story that you've written. Could you say why why is that? Like, why do you think that's your favorite of the ones that you've done? I think it's just the most powerful story I've ever written. Although I've written a few uh, in the recent years, which I think came close. I just think it's literarily, if there is such a thing, it's the best story I've ever written. It was written in part not as a knockoff of. Uh, uh, Ursula Le Guin's The Ones Who Walk Away from a Malus. As a lot of people have written knockoffs of that story in recent years, commentaries on it. But I consciously said, I need this story to be powerful in the same way that that story was. And so I changed everything. I did. It is not modeled on a Malus at all, but I had a Malus in mind when I was writing that story. And I think I came... <laughs> within stadium shouting distance of Le Guin with that story. And that's a big thing to say to myself. So I'm happy with that. Yeah. So, so I'll, I'll explain. So the, the premise of the story is the, the narrator goes to this uh, village, sort of coastal village where, um, uh, where it's just like paradise. It's just magical. Everything's great. Except the every- is, yeah. The name of the, the, the name of the country is Ennisborg, which is a, I, which is important to point out. For, I'll, I'll, you finish your summary, and I'll tell you why that's important. Okay, and and, and so and so he's um, you know just really enraptured by this this magical country that he's come to as a tourist. But then it turns out that every ten days the country is invaded. There's this sort of military occupation, which is just horrific, and everybody's killed, and and the buildings are blown up and everything, and then magically it resets, and so it's this ten day cycle, and sort of. Um, this this horror is kind of the the cost that the people who live there uh, endure and accept for how great things are the rest of the time. Mm-hmm. Yes, and the reason I pointed out the name of the country is Ennisborg, which is spelled E N Y S B O U R G, is a name which is compiled from Empire, New York State. Borg. And this was written in early in the early 2000s and was also inspired by 9/11. A when I was walking around in a daze like the rest of the country was. There were a lot of people saying back then, I would never go to New York right now. I could never go to New York again because that kind of thing happens there. And this was a thing a lot of people were saying. They were writing off New York City because something terrible happened there. And my response was, crap, on September 12th, I wanted to go to New York. I was anxious to go to New York. I felt my place was to be there. Um, It was important to me. And so the story is also about people who feel a great attachment 
to their war-torn or troubled countries. And that's what I was writing about. I was writing about New York City at that point. A lot went into that story, but that's uh, that's why the spelling of that particular city was uh, important. Hmm. I mean, that kind of reminds me of the giant robot story, too, where, you know, the, the premise, as we said, is that this giant robot kills a randomly selected person in the city every day. Mm-hmm. And the author and his wife have this conversation where she says, well, why would anybody live in this city if this is going on? And he's like, well, kind of like we live in a hurricane zone, you know, or whatever, like, you know. When you think of all the people in a city who die every day, what's one more? You know, uh, and so it's just something you kind of get used to, like all the other horrors of life. Yeah, it's like I say frequently about L.A. Why would you want to live in a city where the uh, highway can fall down, the upper half of the highway can fall down, crush the bottom half of the highway, and you're pancaked? And the answer is because you love the city. And you take your chances wherever you live in the whole wide world. You are living in a place that has its own homegrown form of disaster. And you live there taking that risk because you love the place or because you have to. And you internalize the excuses that it doesn't happen all that frequently. Because you, you live in Florida, right? And I just know, I just, you know, it's sort of like a uh, a meme or a joke that there's all these like crazy things happening in Florida all the time. But yeah, well, here's I guess the you ex- love it or. Well, I, I, I ended up here. I came down here and met Judy and I, and I loved it. But the answer to the, the Florida guy, the Florida man, is actually that um, our local police blotters statewide report all these events. Publicly, the newspapers can print them. So it is not that we have our unusual percentage of crazy people. It's that we're more open about it. That's the origin of the Florida man. There are other states which don't mention that. And believe me, if you did uh, get the reports from the police blotter, you would get stranger stories. It is just an illusion of visibility. Huh. That that's really interesting. Yeah, I'm I'm just finding that out for the first time. That's that's really interesting. Um, we'll talk about. So one of the stories in in these books that just absolutely blew me away is called the shallow end of the pool. And so the premise yeah. the premise is that there's a, a a husband and wife with a really toxic dysfunctional relationship, and they've somehow entered into this pact that. The husband is going to raise the daughter and the wife is going to raise the son. And then when they turn 18 or something, they're going to fight to the death. So it's this really <laughs> in, intense, striking premise. So could you just talk about like where did that story come from? Well, I'm not sure I have an interesting story about where it came from, but just the image came to mind. And I said, wow, that is uh, that is a story I've got to write. It struck me as very cinematic. I've always thought that a horror movie should be made of it. I can tell you that um, that it was it was written very quickly. Um, certain stories take you over and you write a lot more than your daily word count. And it's another one of the stories that people who don't like my horror will read and then say, I'll never read a story by him ever again. It happens to be one of my four or five most horrific stories, but that's the way it is. Uh, I absolutely adore this story. I'm very, very proud of it. Um, it was nominated for a Stoker. Um, it has been reprinted a few times. And 
It is uh, in my audiobook as well. And it is actually its own audiobook available um, uh, by online sellers. And it is terrifically, terrifically read. It's just, just, just a story that I happen to adore. And I can yeah. tell you, I didn't, I did not, it's another story where I did not know what was going to happen until I reached that page. And I love writing that way. You can't do it with murder mysteries like the entry court stories, but you can do it with horror stories. Yeah, I, I thought it was just a spectacular piece of writing. And you say in the author's note, you say that some, you, like you should always go for it, or you know, you should never hold anything back, or something like that. So, I've always, I've always believed that. You know, one of the first pieces of advice I ever got that really struck home, um, mentioning Christine Catherine Rush and Dean Wesley Smith again. They took me aside at one point and said, uh, your recent stories sound very safe. They feel very safe. Uh, do you feel safer when you uh, write them? And I said, yes. And they said, did you uh, feel that you were uh, horrified by what was coming out of you when you wrote Clearance the Land? And I said, yes. I said, well, that's what you're doing wrong. And it was a very, very smart piece of advice. I think that you need to feel whatever emotional response the story uh, is supposed to provide for the reader. And that means if it's a funny story, you have to be giggling like a madman when you're writing it. Uh, if it is a suspenseful story, you have to be uh, on the edge of your own seat, not knowing how things are going to turn out. If it needs to be horrific, you need to wonder, oh my God, is this okay that this stuff is coming out of me? Um, and sad, you need to be weeping. These, this is important. This is where the art comes from because if you're not impressed by it, uh, nobody is going to be impressed by it. Nobody's going to feel what you want them to feel. And uh, so uh, Shallow Under the Pool horrified me while I was writing it. And I was very glad that it horrified me. And so it's always been your experience that, you know, you might have some trepidation while you're writing something like, am I going too far with this? But then in the end, you're always glad you didn't pull your punches at all. Or are you, are you ever, do you ever look back on something and say, eh, maybe I should have toned that down a little bit? That, that never happens to you? Well, there are cases where you realize the structure of a story um, does not require the place you can go. Uh, I wrote a story for uh, for Lightspeed magazine called In the Temple of Celestial Pleasures, which ended with the character experiencing some alien sex. Um, he's a human, but he experiences some alien sex. And I reached the end of the story and I said, that's about to happen, but I do not need to describe it. The story is over now. So... I ended up not having to write something that would have been very, very difficult. And that was important. That That's where the story ended. I realized where the story ended. Um, but to, to uh, use a better example, there's a scene in Temporary Dogs of a sweet, slow dance in Temporary Dogs, which is absolutely horrific. The whole middle section. I sweated blood to make that as horrifying as I possibly could which is one reason in my audiobook I have a author's note to the effect not to listen to it if you're driving. I was very serious about that. 
It's a very horrifying story. The only one I would actually say that about. Um, but it, ne- it needs to provide in the author the reaction you want to provide in the reader. And that includes the light and whimsical and happy and sunny stories, which everybody, listen to me, I write those too. <laughs> so don't think I'm just a madman maniac. I've written the sweetest stuff I really have. I mean, you you said earlier that you, the first time you met Harlan Ellison that it didn't go well, but then you, I guess you developed some, you developed more of a, a better uh, relationship with him after that, or kind of what is the story there? Well, just we started running into each other um, at the conventions, and I was always starstruck by him till the day he died. I was, and came a point where he gave a speech that I did not attend at a convention and somebody misreported it to me that Harlan was bad-mathing me. And so I tracked him down and said, why would you say these things? And it turned out that he hadn't. He was complimenting me in the best possible way. I don't remember exactly what he said, but he was very nice and he let me know that he was uh, that he had been complimenting me. And we, over the next few years, we became... I would say fairly close. We were distant in terms of uh, in terms of geography, but we spoke frequently. He loved Judy very much. Uh, he used to tell Judy, "I love you." Uh, him, I'm not too sure about, <laughs> um, which is the kind of things he would say. And I experienced some of the greatness of his personality. I'm aware that there are problematic things as well. And I'm always being confronted with them by people who don't think it's proper to me to still mourn the man or to still have a good opinion of him. And my answer is the man, I, I, the man actually offered at one point to write me a check for thousands of dollars just because he wanted to. And I didn't take the money, but he just offered it. And I could have said yes. He offered it another time to do another great thing for me. He used to call me like two or three times a week after I was diagnosed with diabetes just to see how I was doing. And I recognize people have their reasons for disliking him or disapproving of him or forgive me the phrase. I don't agree with the phrase uh, uh, trying to cancel him. But my answer to that is you don't scoop out 30 years with a friendship or 50 years worth of literary admiration. You can't do that. It's very easy for younger people to do that when he meant nothing to him, when he meant nothing to them. You know, at at a certain point, artists build their spare rooms in your gray matter. Yeah. I I mean, I, I definitely feel that people should be evaluated Proport, you know, like the good and bad should be evaluated proportionally, and that you we should all, say, "Oh, yeah, we are this all pie charts." One bad thing, and so we're I'm writing them off forever. Right? We are all pie charts, and I guarantee to everybody listening to this, this is not me making an excuse for Harlan. This is me telling them one thing about life is that if your iconic figures live long enough there will come a day where you will have to apologize for them. And if you live long enough, you will become out of touch and you will lose, um, you will lose the respect of people younger than you. And this is happens. It is, 
part of being alive. And it needs to educate you, but it cannot be the only factor that controls your visceral reaction. And I loved Harlan very much. You want to know something very ironic? 90 minutes after I discovered that Harlan had died, I found out my father had the fall that eventually killed him. 90 minutes. They died 10 days apart. And I find that a very ironic thing as well. Because one was my biological father and I consider the other one the literary father. Well, let's talk about your story, The Old Horror Writer, because that kind of ties into some of those ideas of, uh, you know, what happens to literary figures over time and and the dis- disappointments and things. So do you, wa- you want to just talk about sort of what does that story mean to you or, or where did that come from? The Old Horror Writer is one of these milder horror stories that I talk about. I think it is very readable by people who have horror aversion. I think it is more of a literary conceit than anything else. There is a horrific monster at its center, but the monster doesn't do anything. It's mostly another portrait of myself um, in my 90s. And because I'm a, I depict myself as a widower in that story, although it was written while Judy was alive, it is, um, it is another story that reads very oddly to me now. And... He is the old horror writer is basically a portrait of what I think my life will be like if I live to that age, um, how I will be irrelevant, um, how I think I will be trying to persuade myself that what I did had value. And these are all the fears that every writer has. And my answer in the story is that my fiction helped people confront monsters. My fiction confronted monsters. And I wrote a lot about the world that's coming up and a lot of things that I'm concerned about, about um, the state of the country and the state of the world. And and that was that. And it was a very uh, – I'm very, very proud of that story. It's one of many stories I write that I think are, is a, going to have a bigger splash than it, than it did. But – it's gotten a lot of good word, and I'm, I'm very happy with it. I mean, this, this kind of interesting discussion in the story about how people used to be just terrified of Dracula, and mm-hmm. then over time, he becomes like Count Chocula and stuff like that, and, and people aren't afraid anymore. And that, that's actually a valuable uh, process of, of, of people becoming less afraid, you know, of, of sort of processing these fears and, um, and getting past them. And that's something that horror fiction does yeah, for people. It happens to be true. I think I say so in the story that when the Frankenstein monster first appeared on screen as played by Boris Karloff, the first sight of his face was enough to make people faint in the theater. It doesn't have that effect on anybody right now. We see a lot more horrific monsters on CGI every day. In fact, within 15 years, uh, the Frankenstein monster was chasing Lou Costello around. Hmm. Monsters are defanged by horror fiction. And it's very, very difficult to write a scary vampire story now. Hell, there's a uh, zombie uh, movie called Fido, in which he's a kid's pet. It's been a musical. I think um, 
I, I think that's one of the things that the story uh, that drove that story that that the story was about, and that is eventually the old horror writer's success in that story. In in one of these notes, I, I was kind of curious. I don't know. You don't have to answer this if you don't want to. But in one of these notes, you you talk about stories coming from having experienced close encounters with a couple of sociopaths myself and trying to work out a rational explanation in my head. And I was just curious if there was anything you wanted to say about dealing with sociopaths or if you had advice for people based on well, lessons uh, you've learned or anything. Well, I think I may, I may have been thinking about uh, one of my uh, managers at a job I held for many years, uh, somebody who told our fellow workers, that it was her position that she wanted to make things so miserable for me to work that I killed myself. And this was her actual statement to the heads of the company who did nothing about it. And this lasted for years. And I've dealt with other sociopaths in my life. And I think in life that you're going to have to. It's, again, I think, I think, I forget the exact number. I think it's one person out of 10, one person out of 20 has no uh, regard for any human beings. This is fairly frequent. And I've met sociopaths. uh, I've met criminals. I've met murderers. I met an axe murderer. Uh, I spent time uh, visiting the Jewish patients at Sing Sing. uh, Not patients, uh, convicts at, uh, at Sing Sing. So I've met people and dealt with people who have done some really evil stuff. And I think I think that is uh, part of the human equation, and I think it has entered our politics to a horrifying degree. Um, And it is one of the things that you examine when you write these stories. Um, You're just hoping you're not exulting in them. It sort of struck me when you said, like, trying to work out a rational explanation in my head because – uh, you know, w- when I was younger, I-, I didn't really know anything about, you know, sociopathy or borderline personality disorder or narcissistic personality disorder, these sorts of things. And I-, I really wish I could go back in time and tell myself, you know, that that there are just some people who you might have issues with them and they don't want to work things out. You know, like like in my head, I'm like, oh, we can just talk this over in whatever difficulties there are. Yeah. Uh, you know, we can treat we can be rational and reasonable and come to some compromise or whatever. And 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 I I wish I could go back and explain to myself, like, no, like there's just some people for them the point, like the drama and the attention and the you know, all that stuff, that's the point. They they don't they're not trying to get away from that. So Yeah. I've if if I could teach my fifteen year old self one thing is that you should never try to win an argument with somebody whose position is that they really want to do whatever they can to make you miserable. Shame does not work. Um, Insulting them better than they have insulted you does not work. Distance works. Or doing something really awful works, and you don't want that to happen. but yeah, I've I've dealt with a lot of evil or hurtful people in my life, people whose only pleasure is causing pain. And I would say I did this uh, to a lesser degree than many, many people have had to. And it's still, 
part of the horrific soundtrack of my life. And I think it's true of most people. Most people know somebody like that or have met several people like that. And they use the words bully or they use the words (laughs) a-hole. And that's not what it is. You're dealing largely in many cases with actual evil. And if you're lucky, it's not bloodletting evil. But that's around everywhere you look. And what's good is that there are also good people around. And those are the ones you have to hold close. Um, all right. We're almost, we're pretty much out of time. Um, I did want to give you a chance to talk about, I mean, I, I, I was just, as I was doing research, I came across your GoFundMe pages and like your Patreon and stuff. And I mean, it looks like you've, I mean, you've just been through some really rough couple of years. Um, but do you want to just talk about what sort of what role the GoFundMe and, and Patreon, like how, how is that? What, what is that? Um, what role has that played in sort of? I will get through some of the okay. I will not go into the uh, the precise series of events, which was basically two years of one blow after another. Uh, the one I've already mentioned, of course, is my wife's death, and there was some homelessness involved too. But it was two years of real awfulness. Um, I was penniless, and uh, GoFundMe, which I regarded as the cons- as the conspiracy of kindness. Um, made a ridiculous amount of money in a very short period of time. And I ran into uh, a subsequent problem and it helped me again. And I have and I have a GoFundMe open right now, but I'm not campaigning and I just never closed the last one. Um, I also have a Patreon, uh, a Patreon page, which does very well for me. Um, I offer various things on it, uh, uh, cat pictures, um, movie reviews, a a movie still of the day. Um, The Remake Chronicles, which is another movie feature, uh, comparing movies with uh, their other versions, um, including some which people don't even know exist. Um, I have just started uh, getting some uh, uh, donations at the amount that uh, will allow me to critique people's writing. And Various things like that. It's it's a significant part of my income. And I think Patreon is a good thing for artists, which it makes them free to write more or create more than they would be if they had to work 50 or 60 hours, as I once had to, um, in, a, in a job. Um, I can tell you, I'm not going to mention the name, but, but I know one a successful writer, a novelist, multiple award winner who basically said one day and on her Patreon, I want to earn enough so that I do not have to work and that I can write a novel a year. And that's what this writer does now. And I think it's a wonderful thing. I think it's a wonderful thing. Uh, I think uh, I, I, I think you just need to be honest with the people you are accepting these donations from. You cannot make up crap. You cannot push for way more money than you need. Um, you have to be honest about what your circumstances are. And I just, I am very grateful to everybody who contributed and who continues to contribute. Do you have any sense with the with the GoFundMe and the Patreon, what percentage of the people are sort of friends and colleagues supporting you and what percentage are just 
you, you look at the names and you're just like, I, I have no idea who this is. This is just some random author, uh, reader who who likes my work. Or I will say that um, I only knew with the GoFundMe about one third of the names that came in. A couple, and a lot of the ones on GoFundMe are anonymous by choice. People can choose to be anonymous. And so I have absolutely no idea uh, who they were um, or who they are, I should say. Um, there were a couple of anonymous people who gave $1,000 a piece. I was astonished. Anonymous. Wow. <laughs> um, and and considering I know what other people do, uh, what other people accomplish and go fund me, um, I've had people I know um, who said uh, tremendous problems and they opened up a GoFundMe to help them through a crisis and they got a grand total of 50 bucks. And I know others who have gotten uh, orders of magnitude beyond what I got. Not that I'm complaining. <laughs> I don't know. It's a, it's a magical thing. It's a magical and a mysterious thing. And one thing I happen to know is, uh, is that there, there are, oh, what is the what is the service that uh, you you ask for? Yeah, go. It is GoFundMe. We, we're we're trying to get a funding for a a, a, a business or a, a job. You're thinking of like Kickstarter. Kickstarter, yes, Kickstarter. Um, there are many there are many places which give you the 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 total failures of Kickstarter, uh, where people got zero <laughs> screenplays, got zero. And and other people got hundreds of thousands of dollars. I don't have an explanation for this uh, because some of the people who got hundreds of thousands of dollars, I said, really, people gave for that? I don't know. I don't understand. I don't understand. But uh, if it works for you at any level, I think it's a good thing. Yeah, I mean, because I'm able to do, or the last couple of years, I've been able to do this podcast full time thanks to Patreon and, you know, my girlfriend for probably like a year or something was saying, Oh, you got to do Patreon. You got to do Patreon. And I, I was so afraid that, uh, that nobody would sign up and I would just like give up all hope and, you know, give up on the podcast and everything. But so, so when I actually did it and I had a couple, you know, I had like, I don't know, 150 people sign up right away or something. It, it was just like, it's just so nice when, um, when, when you, you know, that there's all these people out there that you, you know, you sort of hope we're out there appreciating uh, yeah. what you do. And, but it's nice when they actually materialize. I'm and I'm astonished by the people and fascinated by the people who watch movies, make reaction videos, and somehow get so much from this that they are able to support themselves in style. Um, I think it's a great thing. Yeah, and, and I, I wouldn't say I'm living. I'm definitely not living in style off of Patreon, but I, you know, I, I definitely appreciate it. Uh, you know, I'll sa- I'm satisfied with living. It is not my sole source of income, of course, because I hope to sell lots and lots and lots of stories, and maybe a book, another book or few. But um, it is not. But but it helps. It helps. It is a, it is a percentage, and it is a great thing. And um, I think if you've sold a few stories. Uh, you should try it, but you need to serve it too, and that's uh, that's a factor in whether you have any success in it or not. Yeah. Well, so why don't you tell us? Speaking of, of books, what kind of uh, projects are you are you working on now, or do you have coming up? I'm. I've reached the point where I want to write another novel, 
And I will, as soon as I'm finished the novella I'm writing, although I've told myself that a quite a few things. What I want to uh, point people at is a story that's coming out in uh, Lightspeed um, in August. I don't know the precise date. Um, it's going to be the August issue of Lightspeed. It's called My Future Self Refused. And it is a very, very autobiographical story, more than any of the others I've talked about. Uh, the main character is Adam Troy Castro. And it talks about some of the rough times I've had in the last couple of years via science fiction. And I think this is, again, one of the top five stories I've ever written. So I'm pointing people at it. Uh, that'll be out in August. And I have another uh, seven or eight stories uh, in the pipeline here and there. Um, I have one out in this month's Pulp House magazine. Uh, which is a wonderful uh, collection of stories, wonderful magazine. Pulp House came back after many years of inactivity. And this story is uh, Cards on the Table, about the chat you must have with your significant other when it seems that they're going to stick around. And uh, I'm very proud of that. That's a very Shirley Jackson story. I wish I'd written it when the Shirley Jackson anthology was hmm. buying. Well, yeah, and I'll also just mention, I mean, that um, a bunch of these stories that we've talked about in this interview are available online and Lightspeed or Nightmare and, and things like that. So definitely, if you uh, you know are interested in checking out Adam's work and, and also yeah. supporting our producer, John Joseph Adams, you know, uh, check yes. out some of, the, some, some of those things. I'll give you one more plug, and then I think we're, we're, we are out of time. And I appreciate, okay. I appreciate that I may be pushing it. <laughs> uh, in addition to the books you've mentioned, there is the audio book. My Wife Hates Time Travel and Other Stories, which is 13 hours of my fiction um, read by various people. Um, and it is a uh, it is a collection of some of my better stuff, including a lot of the stories we've talked about. Um, it is a roughly half horror and half other things. And it does have the story where I say, don't, don't listen to this while driving. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, all right, cool. Yeah, but so we are uh, totally out of time. So why don't we wrap things up there? So we've been speaking with Adam Troy Castro about his books, Her Husband's Hands and Other Stories, and to the author's wife versus the giant robot. So Adam, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much, David. It's been a pleasure. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Adam Troy Castro for joining us on the show. This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy was made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please support us on Patreon over at patreon.com slash geeks or via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.